Somebody going to show John the way. I don't know about that, but we'll see how it goes. Hey, if you got your Bibles with you, let's open up to uh, our exciting study through the book of Numbers. Um, it's exciting for me because uh, Numbers chapter 14, we began basically a 40-year journey through the wilderness where we have, on average, 90 funerals a day, uh, the whole deal is like a funeral march for 40 years and there's all these failures and all these hassles and things that happen to the children of Israel but then we have arrived to the 40th year we're in the last year last year before they go the children of Israel are making their way back to the promised land Moses you'll remember last time uh, the Lord had told Moses to speak to the rock Moses struck the rock And so God said, Moses, you're not going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And we talked about that a little bit because we know Moses is a a type, is a picture of the law. And the law won't take you into the promised land. We saw Miriam die. And and Miriam is a picture of the prophets. And the prophets don't take us in to the promised land. And we see Aaron. Aaron is going to die here in a few verses. And so we see the priesthood. It's not taking us into the promised land. And then as we, as we conclude the book of Deuteronomy, we come to the one who brings us into the promised land, Yehoshua. Joshua brings the children of Israel in. And you remember Joshua's name in the Greek is Jesus. Picture of Jesus Christ being the one who is, is able to bring us into the promised land, who is able to help us to experience the promise that Jesus gave. Right? What did Jesus say? I've come to give you life and life how? More abundantly. Now, if we're not experiencing abundant life, it's not that Jesus has told us a lie and it's not possible. What's happened is we find ourselves with them in the wilderness, wandering through unbelief, through bitterness, through anger, through frustration, a number of things we see working through their lives. If we can set that aside and walk in trust and belief, holding on to the promise, then we will enter in where they failed. That's what Paul would write to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he said, all these things are given to us as an example that you and I might enter into the promise that they fell short in. The writer of Hebrews would say the exact same thing. Hey, don't fall short entering into the rest as so many fell short in the wilderness and never entered into the rest. Well, who is our rest? The Bible tells Jesus is our rest. We want to enter into everything that he has for us. The the total package. We want it all. And so as we go through, we see children of Israel beginning to aim their, their way. We saw... Moses getting a a heavy burden laid upon him as the Lord said, you're not going into the promised land. But then what happens the next day? Moses just pout. Well, the next day is verse 14 of chapter 20. It says, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us uh, and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice. 
and sent an angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now, here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside the right hand or the left until we have passed through your territory. He begins by making a request of Edom. He says, Edom, this is your brother Israel. Edom is the, the, the family of Esau. Israel is the family of Jacob. We have Jacob and Esau yet again. You remember when, uh, when Jacob and Esau were in the womb, the Bible says that they fought with one another, even in the womb, for control. And that doesn't change even as they're now their families have grown into great nations. They're still going to continue to fight. They're going to continue to do battle with one another. Well, as we look here, Moses goes to Edom and says, hey guys, we just want to pass through. Now keep in mind, picture in your mind, this is not just, you know, a couple of cars on our way through town. Two and a half million people. Can you imagine? Let's say two and a half million people were passing through Buell tomorrow. You think that caused for the first time in our history traffic jam? It's possible, isn't it? And what if these two and a half million people who were passing through said, well, we're not going to turn to the right hand or left hand. We're not going to overwhelm all your restaurants. We just want to pass through. In essence, that's what Moses has said to Edom. Hey, we're just going to pass. We just want passage, safe passage to go through. And so in verse 18, it says, then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, I'll pay for it. Just let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. They changed their plan. They went a different direction. It's interesting because it, with careful study, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, as Moses is, is rehearsing the history just before he dies to the children of Israel, he says that God will not allow them to be bitter with their brother Edom. He says, you cannot harbor bitterness in your heart. I don't want you to hold unforgiveness. And as we go through the history of Israel, you're going to see Edom, the, an example of Edom being that person that's ruled by bitterness and frustration. And you see Israel as that one that God calls to forgive. To forgive no matter what they did, no matter what they said. Now, does that mean God's not going to deal with Edom? No, God deals with Edom. But he tells Israel, you may not hold this against them. Because that grudge, that begrudgingness, that attitude doesn't hurt Edom, does it? The king of Edom's going to go to sleep tonight and he's going to be fine. But those of Israel who are holding on to that, that bitterness, they're the ones who are going to be tortured by it. So here we see Deuteronomy 23, the Lord saying, hey... Let's not have that bitterness toward Edom. Let it go. Let it go. 
You, you put that into the hands of God. And God didn't tell him to attack. God said, go around. You know, sometimes that happens in our life. You ever been uh, or faced an experience, similar experience in your life where you thought, you know, if only it would all work out like this, that would be a much simpler path. If it, if it all laid out into this straight road, you know, I could just walk that straight road, Lord, this would be just right. But this person or this thing or this issue is in my way. Well, God, his word to you would not be any different than it is to the nation of Israel. Don't hold it against them. Go a different way. Didn't the Lord tell the nation of Israel, I am with you wherever you go? Forty years wandering in the wilderness in unbelief, was God with them? Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. Over and over and over again, every morning, God supplied their needs, didn't he, with bread from heaven? So we see the Lord fulfilling his promise. Wherever you go, I'm going to be there. And if they don't want to let you, I, I, I don't want you filled with bitterness and anger toward your brother, toward your brother Edom. But what we're going to see through the history of Israel is Edom controlled by their bitterness and anger and frustration toward Israel. Maybe because God's favor was with them. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 9, 10, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. In the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew idiom for Jacob, I have chosen, and Esau, I haven't. Why wasn't Esau chosen? Esau wasn't chosen because he was a man of the flesh, right? He sold his birthright. The Bible says he despised his birthright. Remember the birthright. We're not talking about the right to have all the money. We're talking about the right to be priest for the family. He despised that. That was nonsense. And so the Lord said, Jacob, I have loved. I have chosen Jacob. Didn't the Lord tell their mother, hey, the younger is going to rule the older? Don't worry, you have two nations within you, but the younger is going to rule over the other. So perhaps because God chose to work through Jacob, Esau and the family of Esau, the Edomites, became bitter. And did their bitterness help them? Did being angry at God help them? Did their animosity toward the children of Israel, did it, did it make their lives better? We're going to see it makes their lives worse because they allow that bitterness to rot inside of them. And the scripture would declare to you and I not to allow that root of bitterness to take place in our life. That's why the Lord calls us to forgive, to set it aside, to take my hands off it and put it in the hands of God. I'm going to forgive. I'm not going to hold on to bitterness. I'm not going to be angry and frustrated. I'm going to just go another way. And so we see the children of Israel turn another way. They change their direction. And they were not to abhor their brother Edom. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom and said, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. He shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. So here we have Aaron's not dead yet, but God is saying to them, Aaron, this is, this is the day. 
I wonder what that's like. I mean, I, I wonder what it's like. We see a very similar situation occur with Moses, don't we? I mean, Moses, the Lord tells Moses, okay, Moses, this is the day. Come with me. He says to, to Aaron, grab Eliezer, your son, go to the top of Mount Horn. In fact, if you go to Israel today, there's a place uh, that they call Mount Hor. I'm not sure that they're absolutely certain beyond all shadow of a doubt that that's the place. But on top of that mountain, still today, is Aaron's tomb. You can see it from, from the ground, this little square. You have to get a special uh, uh, permit. You take camels, and it's an all-day trip to get to the top and see the, the tomb of Aaron. But that's, this is a, a tradition. There's, there, it's not proof positive that that's the right place. But it's interesting that there it is on the top of Mount Hor. We see him say, Aaron... Get Eliezer. Now, Aaron's 123, 123 years old. And look, verse 26, Strip Aaron of his garments and put him on Eliezer, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So they take, remember the high priest was only supposed to transmit through the children of Aaron, right? So when Aaron would pass it on to his next oldest son, Eliezer, so they go to the top of the mountain, and he's going to strip off all his garments, and he's going to put them on his son. And Aaron's going to die. And Eleazar will come down the mountain, high priest. The second, now, high priest for the nation of Israel. So, Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put him on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. During the 40th year, coming back toward the promised land, and we're seeing the the last remnants of that generation die leading to the promise that they're going to enter in. That they're going to be able to enter in. So Aaron lays aside his life. He finished his race. He hands it off, the mantle that he wore to his son. There's nothing different about that today. We all, as fathers, mothers, parents, pass off our mantle to our children. Whether you do it like they did by going to the top of the mountain or it just happens because of uh, natural circumstances, but our children walk in our footsteps. The frustrating thing about our kids is usually that they didn't learn by our mistakes and they go make their own. But nonetheless, they learned to follow in mom and dad's footsteps. Passing on that mantle is important that the mantle that we pass on is, is that mantle that the Lord has directed us to, that we're following the Lord, that we're training them up in the ways of the Lord, that we're focused on what God wants to do in our life, and hopefully that passes forward to theirs. Now, chapter 21 <clears throat> says, The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Ephraim, and he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner. You might remember this guy. 
This is a guy from Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, God said, because you didn't believe me, you can't go in the land. And the next day, the children of Israel wake up and they go, oh, wait, we made a mistake. So let's go fight now. You guys remember? So they went down the hill and they fought and they got whooped. That was this king. That was this people that we're reading about here. So now this guy says, oh, them Israelites are back. Hey, we whooped them before. We'll whoop them again. So he goes and he, he sneaks up on them and takes a few prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah, which literally means utter destruction. That's the same place that they lost the last time. What's different about this time? God said, I'm with you. Go. Now, whenever we look at the conquest of the nation of Israel and the Canaanites, you need to realize the scripture declares to us that God waited 400 years for the iniquity of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, uh, the Amorites. there's one more, Ammonites. <clears throat> he waited 400 years for their iniquity to be complete. In other words, he waited the, the ability to, to turn from their lifestyle and what they were all about was laid out before him. For 400 years, they didn't go. So when the Lord went in, he said, utterly wipe them out. If you leave any, they're going to infect you. Remember when we studied through the book of Leviticus, that which is clean can be made unclean, right? So, simply by touching that which is unclean. And we're going to see in the next chapter, next week probably when we deal with Balaam, how easy that is to, to occur. So the Lord says, utterly wipe them out, destroy it. So there's nothing left but you guys. That was two things. One, God's reward to the nation of Israel. Two, God's judgment on a nation that lived 400 years in, in rebellion against him and those days come read the book of revelation chapter 6 through 19 the outpouring of the wrath of god upon a christ rejecting world judgment does come and so we see that same thing happening with the canaanites here and this becomes a real turning point for the nation of israel hey we're really headed back we're really headed now they're not in the promised land they're on the outskirts But now they're winning some battles. They seem to be moving in the right direction. Everything seems to be going good. Have you ever had one of those mountaintop experiences where everything that you you were hoping for happened and and you seem to be cruising right along? What happens right after that? Yeah. The Bible says like this. Paul would write like this. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That we want to realize that we need to be standing in Christ, not in our own strength or our own abilities. And the same thing is true of these guys. Look, they have this great victory. Look what happens. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So they just have this big high. They just have this great victory. You ever gone on a retreat? 
Maybe you went to a retreat on top of the mountain, but as soon as you come down off the mountain, what's waiting for you at home? All the stuff you left behind when you went to retreat. It didn't go away. It's still there. For them, it was no different. Hey, they, they, they start to journey. It's been almost, or it's, they're in the 40th year. They're coming to the conclusion. They're weary in their souls, and they're tired. Because what they're doing, they're doing on their own strength, in their own strength. The soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now this is the ninth murmuring of the people. Ninth murmuring, but the first murmuring that they murmured against God. They wouldn't murmur against Moses, which is the same as murmuring against... But this time, they murmured against the Lord and Moses. This time, their anger was turned toward both of them. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Now, have we not heard this line before in our studies in Numbers? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Man, that's pretty harsh. There's no food and no water. Now, they have not had to go hungry one day in 40 years. Not one day. God gave them everything that they needed. Occasionally, he even gave them what they were asking for. But in this case, they're saying, hey, the... We don't have any food, we don't have any water, and we hate this loathsome bread. Whenever I read this section in Numbers, immediately it draws my attention to the, to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, you'll remember Jesus, as he's, laying out for the, uh, as he's laying out for the Pharisees, he says here, Our fathers, here's the Pharisees speaking, Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. John six, thirty-one, Verse 32, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Whenever I think about that, you know, you need to understand, God never called it manna. God always called it bread from heaven because his son was true bread from heaven, the bread of life, sent. People called it manna, which some people, going back to the ancient Hebrew, uh, say means what's it, what's this? So they just called it what's it, manna. It was a somewhat derogatory term. But here we see that that manna was a picture of Jesus Christ. So in Numbers, when we see the people cry out and say, we've come to loathe this worthless bread, don't you see the same attitude in the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the nation of Israel when Jesus came? We don't want this bread. Jesus said, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood if you'll have any part with me. And many turned away from him in that place and went their own way because they said this teaching was too hard. What Jesus was saying is, I need to become a part of you. You don't need to study about who I am or about me. You need me inside of you. 
You need me to become a part of you. But here, the children of Israel, in the, in the typology, we see the complete typology. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Who cares about this bread from heaven? The bread that speaks of Jesus. And so the Bible tells in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents. Among the people, they bit the people as many of the people of Israel died. The Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, what was special about these fiery serpents? We don't know. Some people say they were called fiery because maybe they were red. We don't know why they called them fiery. It could be that the, the venom, when they bit them, it burned, so they called them fiery serpents. It, it's really not that important except to the fact that it speaks that God said, listen, you, you are rejecting me. You're rebelling against me. You despise my provision. Fine. And he sends the fiery serpent. And the fiery serpent is going to teach a lesson that we, again, will see picked up for us in the Gospel of John. In verse 7 it says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, and he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I love that Moses is always praying for the people. By the way, still got about 160 spots open on Warriors on the Wall. Feel free to take a spot. Sign up. Watch, cover our body, our fellowship, our community, our nation in prayer for one hour of one day of the week. And, and be willing to stand in the gap like Moses did for the people. Praying for the people. Praying for the people. Whenever he had that opportunity, he prayed for the people. But listen, what did the people do when tribulation came? When the fiery serpents came and bit them? When they started having a little bit of a rough time? You see, when you come to the book of Revelation, you study the book of Revelation, you discover that the earth dwellers those who were focused and living their lives for the earth, whenever the tribulation entered into their life, they cursed the heavens. And they did not repent. Over and over and over again, when the judgments of God come in the book of Revelation, the man, mankind's hearts are hard, and they will not repent. But what do we see here? This is a new generation, right? Getting ready to enter into the promised land. They're blowing it. They're, they're blaming God. They're at, mad at God. They're rejecting and rebelling against God. And immediately they recognize in the judgment that God brought of the fiery serpents that, hey, this is, this, we need to repent. We're wrong. And so they repent. Immediately they call out for Moses to pray for them. That needs to be our heart. How far down the road do we have to go? How far down the road of rebellion? How far along through the, the different things that are going on in our lives do we have to run before we realize that God wants us to repent? He wants us to press into Him. He wants us to acknowledge that He indeed is the one who owns all of this. Our nation is in dire need of repentance. But our nation can only seem to build up the, the gall to 
to do more and more rebellious things against the Lord. Over and over and over again. Now, if we think that's going to happen and no judgment of God will befall, we're crazy. We're crazy. Payday's coming. What does God call us to be? Salt and light. Salt and light. What does salt do? It preserves. It's a preservative. That salt spreads around, stops that rotting and corrosion and all that stuff that's going on. So God wants His body, the church, to be performing that in a world that is in rebellion against Him. He wants us to be light. What does light do? Light doesn't have to do anything to chase away the darkness, does it? All you turn on a switch, light happens, darkness flees. That right reflection of Jesus Christ in our life. Rightly reflecting Jesus Christ. Just like the, the moon reflects the sun, we are to reflect His glory. We who say we abide with Him ought also to walk even as He walked, to be salt and light. So what does the Old Testament lay out for us? What does the Bible say? He said to the nation of Israel, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and I will hear from heaven. I'll hear their cry, and I'll, humble their, or, and I'll heal their land. Scripture goes on in Ezekiel to say that the judgment of God came against the nation of Israel because God looked and there was no one left to stand in the gap. Nobody was standing in the gap. And the judgment came. Same thing that's going on here with the nation of Israel, I think we're going to see in our own country. We, we've been looking at a world that's in which Christians have suffered and we've been pretty much exempt for well, a long time, maybe a hundred years or more. We've been exempt of persecution. It's not always going to be that way. It will not always be that way. Already the tides have turned. The, the, the nation's opinion of Christianity keeps it just slightly above, you know, bottom-dwelling, mud-sucking gunk. Just slightly above that. So it's not something that is held in, in high esteem and in high regard. And the day will come when they'll turn. And we, those who have pledged our, our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ... We need to stand strong. We need to stand firm. We need, like Moses, to be praying how for the people. Even though they hated him, he's praying for the people. Every time we turn around, he's praying for the people. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Now most people assume that this fiery serpent was affixed to a pole, wrapped around the pole, ultimately becomes a symbol for medicine uh, throughout history, this serpent wrapped around a pole. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that that's the way the serpent was wrapped around the pole. Serpent could have been put across the pole. What would that have looked like? The Scripture lays out for us that cursed is he who what? Hangs on a tree, right? In fact, it's one of the 
One of the favorite verses that Jehovah Witness likes to say, Jesus couldn't have been uh, uh, crucified. Uh, he had to be placed on a, on a pole, not a cross, because of, the Bible says, curses he who hangs on a tree. Well, that's the whole point. Jesus became the curse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin, died, fulfilling the penalty that was placed upon the soul that sins, and was risen again in a, in a uh, proclamation of the Father, saying the sacrifice is done once and for all. It's paid. By faith in Christ, you are made clean. Here we see the, the beginning of that. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, All these things happen as types, as pictures, as photographs of things that would take place. Moses is told to affix a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and whoever looks at it will be saved. What exactly did the people have to do to be healed? I said, look at it. That last I checked, that's not a whole lot of work, is it? Look at the pole. Look at the pole. Well, as you're considering this, hold your finger here and turn with me to John chapter 3. <clears throat> John chapter 3 is a section of scripture some people call Nick at night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus, in teaching him, lays out for him in verse... Uh, chapter 3 verse 14 and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life scripture lays out for us here's the picture a picture of what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. That anyone who would look to Him, who put their faith in Him, will be saved. The picture of that in the Old Testament, the fiery serpents have bitten people. People are laying on the ground, writhing in pain. Moses hurriedly takes a, a, bright, a brazen pole and a brazen serpent, and he affixes them together, made out of brass. Why? Because brass speaks of judgment. The serpent speaks of evil. Evil what? Evil judged. He takes evil, the curse, judged. He who, who dies on the tree is cursed. The curse was judged when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he lifted that up. And I wonder how many people Moses had to run over to and say, Hey, just look at the pole. Just look at this brass serpent on the pole and you'll be healed. And I wonder how many people rolled over and said, Give me a shot. Can't you just pray for me? There's got to be something I have to do. Can't you give me a, some medicine? How many people perished unwilling simply to look at the pole? To look at evil or sin judged. That picture fulfilled in Jesus Christ. How many today will go into an eternity without Jesus Christ because they're unwilling to look at sin judged and put their faith and trust in Him? In the same way, we see here Moses doing this, putting up, uh, uh, fixing the, the serpent to the pole, and the Bible tells us 
that whoever looked at it would live. So Moses, he made the bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. He lived. He set up the bronze serpent and he lived. In Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah the prophet, many years later, says this, speaking of the Messiah, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's exactly what we see being pictured in the book of Numbers. Exactly what Jesus Christ did as foretold in Isaiah. Hey, look to me. No one who calls upon the name of the Lord is going to be lost. What does the Bible say? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No one disappointed, no one left behind, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we see God working and moving in this way. Later on we see that the people, the children of Israel begin to worship the bronze serpent on a pole. And we'll see the bronze serpent on a pole destroyed so that the people will stop worshiping it. That's going to be a little while down the line. We'll, we'll catch that in a few books. But as we take a look at this, realize on this day, everyone who looked at it was saved. Now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Oboth. And they journeyed from Oboth and came to Ijiabarim in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. Now you're around the children of Lot. Remember, Lot had children, right? Well, most of his children perished in Sodom and Gomorrah. But after Sodom and Gomorrah, he and his two daughters hid in a cave. His two daughters got him drunk and slept with him. And they had children. One of the children's name, Moab. The other, Ammon. The Ammonites and the Moabites. This is the land that the children of of Israel are now wandering through the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites. He goes on and says, Now, therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahib in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwellings of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water the word bear means well uh, over and over again especially in the book of genesis when you follow abraham you're going to see that phrase often because just about everywhere he goes he, there's a well there well uh of of the lord over and over again we see that then israel sang this song spring up O well all of you sing to it spring up O well everybody knows that song right I got a river of life flowing. We did it a lot different in youth group. Sometime I'll play it for you guys. You'll be running. Spring up a well. All of you sing to it. In the well the leaders sink, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. 
And from the wilderness, they went to Matana. From Matana to Nahaliel. From Nahaliel to Bamoth. From Bamoth in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down upon the wasteland. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. Now we see this same phrase again, right? The Edomites, he asked. Now he's asking the uh, Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all the people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Now I've often discovered that the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we want a little bit more in-depth on what's taking place here. We can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 2. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, Moses, again rehearsing prior to his death for the children of Israel, says this, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through, for the Lord your God hardened his heart and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. So we see that when they were passing through Edom, God didn't do this. He didn't harden the, <coughs> the Edomites' heart. He didn't send the children of Israel to war. In fact, he called them against bitterness. But here, he says, listen, guys, <coughs> I'm going to harden this guy's heart. He's not going to let you pass, and you're going to whoop him. Why? Because the Amorites are part of the Canaanites. And this is a precursor to the battles that they will be having as soon as they enter into the promised land. They may be as close to six months from entering in, maybe less, from entering into the promised land. And here the Lord sends them a little precursor to it, a little, a little uh, taste of the battles, if you will, that they're going to, to be fighting. So Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through the territory. And he gathered together against Israel. In verse 24, Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So God gives them this little taste, a little trial of what they're going to fight, the Amorites. And then that land borders up against Ammon. Remember who's, who Ammonites were Sons of Lot. The Ammonites become a picture and the Amorites throughout Scripture of sin. Over and over and over again. They were people that those families born of incest that would spend their, their days, their life in rebellion against the Lord. And they become a picture of sin over and over again in the battle against sin. You'll see those two names, Amorites, Ammonites, come up over and over again through the Old Testament. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land, from his land as far as the Arnon. 
Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sichon be repaired. For fire went out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sichon. It consumed the Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab! You have perished, O people of Shemash. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters as into captivity to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon, and he laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Mediba. So there's this proverb that they lay out. One of the parts of the proverb that I really like is when it talks about the fire springing up in Heshbon and consuming the enemies of the Lord. Over and over and over again through Scripture, we see this picture. We hear the phrase from the writer of Hebrews that our God is an all-consuming fire. When we see Elijah uh, calling down for fire from heaven in his battle against 400 priests of Baal, what did we see? Fire from heaven come down, consume everything. The altar, the wood, the, the water, the sacrifice, all of it. But when we see the fire of God working within the lives of God's people over and over and over again, we see them not consumed, but energized by that fire. The burning bush burned but was not consumed. The 120 disciples on the day of Pentecost had tongues of fire over their head, empowered by the power of God, but they were not consumed. But the enemies of God, they are consumed. They are consumed by that fire that comes forth from the Lord. Again, we want to be walking in that place where we're walking in the power of the Spirit and we're entrusting ourselves to that strength that God gives through that all-consuming fire that He is. Let it burn away the dross. Let it burn away the flesh. Let it burn away all the junk that we don't want in our life anyway. And what's left after the refiner's fire has gone through, is pure gold. Pure gold. The land is being prepared for God's people. And symbolically, they see it as the fire of the Lord going through and quenching their enemies, driving their enemies away. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Now this land, we're going to see in the book of Joshua, this land is going to become the home of Gad, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The tribe of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh are not going to enter in across the Jordan. They're going to stay on this side because they like the land that they, that they won from the Amorites. And God gives them permission to stay as long as they're willing to come in and do all the fighting for the children of Israel that they would conquer the land and then they could go back home. So this battle, this defeat, this victory that they achieve is going to eventually become the home in the land for the, the tribe of Gad and, huh? and for um, half the tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so then it goes on. Uh, then Moses <clears throat> sent to spy out Jazer, and they took his villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. And they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. 
So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. Now, this is a section of Scripture that you might just as easily read through and miss exactly what's going on. So, so we don't miss it, hold your finger there and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Again, as Moses is rehearsing history of the nation of Israel, he's going to rehearse what took place with, uh, with Og, the king of Bashan. And uh, we'll see the, the reason why we want to take a look at that. Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people in his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified, high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and all the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time, we took the land from the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians called Hermon, Sirion, and the Amorites called Senir, all the cities of the plain of Gilead, all Bashan, as far as Salkah, Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnants of the giants. When we take a look at that, again, we're looking at a similar phrase we see in Genesis chapter 6. We saw in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea, the giants, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, the Rephaim. The, whatever there was about these people, it struck fear into the hearts of God's people. Now there's a lot of teachings we can get out on rabbit trails all day long and spend the rest of the time uh, probably today and next week and a week after that talking about Nephilim. We're not going to do that. The Bible only mentions them three times. I'm not going to spend all my time talking about them. But the concept is that Og of Bashan was a giant. Like we're going to see when we see Goliath in his battle against David. You remember the entire children of Israel were afraid of this one guy. Why? Because he was of that same group, the Rephaim, the giant, whatever that was. The the Bible calls them Nephilim, fallen ones. The Greek is gigantes, which is giants, but it's just a transliteration. There's no straight across word 
for what's spoken of in the Hebrew. Who were these guys really? What were they really like? What were they really about? All we know is it struck fear in the hearts of God's people. Over and over again. And you remember the children of Israel, when they stood at Kadesh Barnea, they said, we're not going in. Why? There's giants in the land. Now they're on the edge of the land, and God delivers the giants into their hand. Og of Bashan. Now there's more battles with giants a little further on. We'll see Caleb wanting to go to do battle with, uh, with the giants. Um, uh, I think the Amalekites, uh, the king of Amalek is a giant we'll see that again as we go through but listen as you look at these phrases recognize what's going on this is and no different than the the giants we see in our own life now maybe we can't describe them with a lot of other words but it's whatever that thing is that that strikes us with fear and stops us from being able to move forward and do whatever god has called us to do but God will deliver them into our hands, even as he delivered Og, the king of Bashan, into his hands. Scripture goes on to say, Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah, the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to a standard cubit that's 18 inches. And this land which we possessed at the time from Aror is by the river Arnon and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. So we see that being distributed. The rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob, all of Bashan, was called the land of the giants. The land of the giants. That great unnamed fear among the children of Israel. In Numbers chapter 21, he, he finishes by saying, So they defeated him, his sons and all his people, until there was no survivor left him, and they took possession of his land. Now as we're thinking about Og, the king of Bashan, and what that's all about, turn with me to the book of Psalms. The psalmist uh, mentioned something about this as well that I wanted to, to close with tonight. Psalm 22. 800 years before crucifixion has been invented, the psalmist, a psalm of David, writes... These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip and shake their head and say, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. 
But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging, roaring lion. When we read Psalm 22, it is the exact thoughts of, of Jesus Christ on the cross. Over and over and over again, you see the same phrases. Oh, they shoot out their lip. They say, uh, let God deliver him since he trusted in him. All these are the things that people shouted at Jesus while he was on the cross. Now, if you look at this phrase, strong bulls of Bashan, you notice the bulls are in italics. That's because the word bulls is not there. It's been added to try to give an understanding of what he's writing. Strong of Bashan have encircled me. What was in Bashan? Bashan and all of Bashan was known as the land of the giants. The land of the giants. The Nephilim, the Rephaim, the fallen ones. When I, when I understand this, as I look, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but as I look at this, Jesus from the cross is saying, the, 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 the giants of Bashan are, are surrounded me. Whatever that is, the, the giants, whether it's a demonic horde uh, in movement against the Messiah, I mean, we don't have any idea what was taken on the spiritual plane as Jesus was dying on the cross. It's, it's not far-fetched to imagine that he was surrounded by demons is it and here he says the strong the strong of bastion have surrounded me they gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lions when i see that i just see you know these faceless faces of of demons crying out against him i am poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart it's like wax that is melted within me. When his side was pierced, blood and water flowed forth. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. We look at Psalm 22 and we see a description of a crucifixion 800 years before crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians. So as we, as we take a look at, at the scripture, the only reason I bring that up for us is to, to realize when we look at Og of Bashan and we see that he was of the Rephaim, the last of the, of the Rephaim, they say, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, the giants, whatever they were, Genesis chapter 4 says that they were there before the flood and they were around after the flood. So, you know, whatever that is, I tend to look at it as something other than human since all of mankind was obliterated in the flood. That there was something else that, that took place. And here at the crucifixion of Christ, we see that same phrase brought up again. The strong of Bashan encircling around me, gaping, opening their mouths at me, 
and roaring like a lion. The point is, as we go through the scriptures, there's so much in the scriptures for us to take, to eat, to digest, to research, to chew on, to look at, to realize that that God has so much for us if we're willing to come in with eyes wide open and give due diligence to the study of God's Word. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time we study through the book of Numbers, Lord. We're excited, God, that the end of the 40 years in the wilderness is coming. That the children are being poised and prepared to enter into the promised land. And we're reminded that the same is true for us. That we are being poised and prepared to enter into the abundant life promised by Jesus Christ. Victorious Christian life. That as we, too, wait on the shores of the Jordan River for the ability, the courage to attack the giants that are before us, that, God, that courage comes only from you. Father, when we are faced with the disappointments of life and we have to alter our course, Lord, teach us not to be bitter. Teach us to forgive. Teach us to look to you as our victory. For when you are with us, wherever we put the sole of our foot, you have given to us. Lord, we lay before you our church, our fellowship, our town, our nation. We ask, Lord, that you would just begin the rumblings of revival among your people. Lord, that we would be ignited by a holy fire. And in that holy fire, Father, that we would burn away all the junk. And all that would be left would be that pure gold, Father, that we would be light and salt in this world. And truly, Father, that we would enter in to the abundant life. Lord, we lay this evening before you and ask your blessing. God, give us a hunger for your word Give us a desire to grow and to learn and to, and to know more. Father, as we just seek your blessing in this time, we lay it before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and close in worship. We want to invite you to hang out. I think we got root beer floats outside in the foyer. Uh, if you can hang out and fellowship with us, that'd be great. God bless you guys and go in peace.